Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guests are David Jimenez-Katzman and Katrina Escudero. David and Katrina are managers and producers at Sugar23, a newly formed management group founded in 2017 by Academy Award-winning manager and producer Michael Sugar. David and Katrina, we're very excited to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Excited to talk to someone new. You know, quarantine, it gets kind of old who your circle is. <laughs> well, we're very excited to talk to you. We've talked to a few managers before, and it's always a guilty pleasure for us because we love demystifying Hollywood and management side of things. So we would love to dive into process but before we do. I would love to know a little bit about my first question is always, where are you in the world? I want to guess LA. Is that true? Yeah. I'm in sunny Mount Washington, Los Angeles. Yes. And I just actually moved back to LA. I spent most of 2020 in the Central Valley in California just to get away from all the crowdedness of LA. So newly back in LA and excited to be home again. There was a time most of the past year or so during quarantine, where we talked about how quarantine has affected you, things were starting to get better and then the Delta variant hit. Can you recap us how you were affected by the past year? And then what are things looking like now? Are things still looking up? You know, the last year and a half has been incredibly challenging on so many levels. And I hope that everyone listening is holding up as best they can. But on a micro level, my day-to-day hasn't changed that much. There was a huge appetite for development since studios and networks couldn't make anything. So my writers had lots of work. You know, the target has become narrower, but there's still a target to hit. Writers' rooms went remote, and so they were smaller, but there were still many being put together. And then once production figured out how to get up and running safely, my directors started working as well. But on a macro level, there have been some huge changes. You know, like many industries, developing trends were accelerated. There's been an astounding amount of consolidation in television and many more walled gardens being built. Obviously, the theatrical distribution business is completely transformed, and what happens next largely depends on how the pandemic develops from here. But on a more exciting level, a lot of new avenues for creators to monetize their content have emerged or reached critical mass. On the larger side of things, you have things like TikTok, Twitch, YouTube, Twitter. And on the more emerging side, you have Substack, Patreon, OnlyFans, and etc. And as for what happens next, I think if we've learned anything over the last year, it's that anything can happen. That being said, I think it's clear that there's too much of a demand for content and too much money in it for the world not to figure out how to mount production. So things may be more expensive, lower, insurance might be harder to get, but we'll figure it out as long as there's a demand for it. Yeah. And I should clarify the kind of manager I am is I handle media rights. So I represent authors and journalists and podcasts and help kind of adapt them into TV shows and movies. So with that explanation, you all can probably imagine quarantine was a massive boom to my business because people finally had time to read books. You know, 
that's one of the biggest challenges of what I do is how do you get an actress to read a 365 page book when they're busy on set, when they're going from location to location. So my sort of area of the business was very blessed to see that there were a lot of bidding wars on material. Prices were driven up for development. There was a lot more business to be made. And I think that what's great about the past year and a half is it's really put an importance in how authors are able to adapt their own material. And I think there's more of an openness to have authors involved in the adaptation process because people are able to see that adaptations work. And thanks to people like Reese Witherspoon, who've kind of just made reading fun again and showing the importance of owning your own IP and being able to produce it. I've really seen a huge growth in my business. And I think it's been kind of really interesting to see the people who are now gravitating towards books and all of that. But to David's point, my business is very different in terms of getting to that production point. Most of the time, authors spend the first two years dealing with finding the perfect writer for the material, the perfect actress. So our side of the business has always been a bit slower, but I'm kind of grateful that people are falling in love with literature again. Before we get into what you do, I would love to get a little bit about your origin stories, just for the context of the audience, so they know who you are, where you came from, how you got to this point. So can you tell us what your origin stories are? Did you always want to be managers, producers? How did you get to right now? I grew up in Canada. I'm actually first generation on both sides. My mom's side is Russian. My dad's Dominican. And so Hollywood and being a manager was never really in our vocabulary. My parents actually held an intervention. Funny enough, when I told them I wanted to come to Hollywood, they thought it was just a bunch of suit-wearing, cigar-smoking, crack-snorting assholes. And I was like, yes, but you know, there's much more to that too. But my journey started actually in business school. For the first time in my life, I had a few hours between classes. I wasn't living on campus. I wasn't going home. And all I wanted to do was watch a movie on my laptop. And it was 2007. So you know nobody was doing it yet. And so I called my buddy up at MIT and I said, hey, how do we build this thing? And I was lucky that my uncle's best friend is a partner at Deloitte in their technology division. And so he had a client at the time who had created this compression format where you could stream an HD movie in about 30 seconds which was a big deal at the time. So you know, I got put together with them, came up with a whole business plan, cold called the heads of distribution of all the studios in Canada. You know, I was lucky enough to go to a good school. So they took a meeting with me and I got all the pricing and put together a whole thing. Pitched it to Cineplex Entertainment, which is like the AMC of Canada. They control about 90% of movie screens up there. And I said, you know, this is your foray into home entertainment. So you have this free marketing platform that are your movie screens, and this is the way to actually get into people's homes. And I got all the way up to the top, and it came down to choosing between my plan or Hewlett Packard, I think, had pitched them something completely different. And of course, they went with HP, and the parting words to me were, who's ever going to want to watch a movie on their cell phone or laptop? You know, then I didn't know really what I was onto, and I got into law school, and so I went and did that. But when I figured out that I didn't want to be a lawyer, I remembered how much I enjoyed that process. You know, Netflix was a thing by then, and it was clear where the business was headed. And so I cold called all the agencies, got an internship at ICM in New York in their business affairs books to film department, and then just parlayed that. You know, I did my master's degree in law at Cardozo to get a visa, moved out here to LA, worked at Anonymous Content and Three Arts, two of the other, you know, big management companies, 
and then got promoted about six years ago at a company called Link Entertainment, which essentially had no literary department when I joined. And the whole sell to me was, hey, come here, get promoted now, you're 24, build it and you know, brand it, essentially. So I did that, discovering young writers and directors that had no credits and breaking them in and building them into showrunners. And did that successfully, thankfully, focusing on quality over quantity. And left them last November and at pretty much every management company around town. And the only one I wanted to join was Sugar 23. And here we are. I actually had a different experience from David, but a little similar is that I actually was born and raised in LA and spent about eight years of my life living in South America when I was a teenager and went to high school there for half my life. But moved back to LA when I was 15 and went to a private all-girls school that very much had a lot of girls that their parents were agents, managers. I had no idea. I just knew they, their parents did something important in entertainment. And I went to Cal for college and I thought I wanted to be a journalist. And I worked for the newspaper there at Berkeley and realized I hated it, which, you know, I think it's an important lesson for people to realize that sometimes you think you want to do something and it's when your gut tells you you don't want to do it. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew that I loved reading books. I was a comparative literature major. I was that kid waiting for Harry Potter in line and finishing it that night. I've always loved to read. I love watching movies. I love TV shows. So I was like, what can I do? And I just blindly applied to about 50 internships in LA. Was very, very lucky. Got an internship at Mosaic and Atlas Entertainment. It was when they were sharing kind of a floor and there was a way to work for both sides. And when I was at Mosaic, I was lucky enough to be paired with a media rights manager. Back in the day when I started, it was called Books to Film because really books were only adapted into films. And rest in peace, his name was Nick Harris, but he kind of walked me into his office and was like, so what do you want to learn? And I was like, well, what do you do? And he was like, see this book? We're going to sell it and make it a movie. And my mind was completely, completely blown. I had no idea that that job existed. And he kind of laughed at me and said, well, how do you think Harry Potter was made into a movie? And I was like, wow. Never thought of that. So I really loved my internship there. Nick then told me he was going to go to an agency and he was saying that next summer, if I was really serious about this career path, I should try getting an internship at ICM. And so I applied and lucky enough, I got an internship there as well. And then was an intern for a motion picture agent, young agent at the time. Her name's Kathleen Remington. And she was the absolute best mentor I could have asked for. I was watching her kind of, at the time, she was a very young junior agent covering eight studios. And I just remember thinking, I don't know what this person is doing, but I want to do her job. And at the end of my internship, Kathleen was very generous and basically told me, look, I think we work really well together. If you're serious about this, come back and you can be my assistant and skip the mailroom, which was, I knew kind of a crazy, crazy opportunity. So I actually graduated from Cal early to then be an assistant to Kathleen at ICM. I worked for her for about a year and it was really helpful for me because I truly was clueless about the industry. I didn't know who producers were. I didn't understand the studios. And through her, I kind of learned like, 
what studios make big horror films, what studios make kind of the little kind of family romances and all of that. And I got a great education and a great boot camp. I learned so many things from her. And from that experience, I kind of realized I only cared about reading the open writing assignments that were based on books and wanted to get back there. So long story short, I then went to work for Ron Bernstein, who's a legend in the film and TV business. He has clients like Cormac McCarthy and Margaret Atwood. And while I was on his desk, I witnessed him make that Handmaid's Tale deal. That's now what we all know, the monster that it is. I saw him make the deal for OJ Simpson, the FX kind of series with Jeffrey Tubin, and just really watched him put together so many things that have now made it on the air and was really, really grateful for that experience. And from there was promoted to coordinator. And I had been coordinator for a couple of years and kind of realized something that you realize when you've been at the same company for a couple of years is sometimes people need to move to grow and to get a new experience. Media rights is very different at ICM because they have in-house publishing agents, which means that you automatically get material from your own company. So I kind of wanted an experience where I could learn more from all the publishing agencies. So had a couple of interviews, ended up moving to UTA, was an agent at UTA for five years. And while I was in that department, I learned a lot from my colleagues. They have a tremendous, tremendous TV literary group that I am so blown away with some of those agents to this day and made great relationships. But then kind of with that experience, I was lucky enough to work with podcasts like This American Life and platforms like The Atlantic. And just with the shift we're seeing in business now and representation and through the writer strike, I kind of realized like, I want to be a little bit more creative with my clients as well. Like some clients I work with, as I mentioned, are adapting their own work. And I wanted to be a part of those screenwriting deals and learn more and deal with more multi-hyphenate clients. So I realized that management kind of felt like a better fit for me. And like David, I interviewed at a lot of different places. And just after meeting Michael Sugar, which by the way, a little anecdote about him is the last time I had really dealt with Michael is when I was working at ICM as an assistant. And I would never forget because you remember as an assistant is most people just call you so-and-so's assistant, so-and-so's office. Michael Sugar was the only person who called me by my actual name. And I always called him as a joke, the cookie guy, because when Kathleen would close the big deals, he would send delicious cookies. And it kind of shows a lesson of like, you never know where people will end up because then I met him and now working with him as a colleague and with Meredith Wechter. And it just felt like such a natural, amazing fit. And it's been so amazing to be able to get to know all the managers that are joining and this newly formed kind of venture and having our production team as well, which is, they're all fantastic and great. Love that. I'd love to dive right into what you do, what it is that managers and producers do, and then what makes Sugar 23 special. So. I know it's a two-part question, but would you mind breaking down from a high level what you do? And then also, what about Trigger 23 is different than all the other management companies? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. It's, you know, we can teach a whole course on it. But I think on a high level, managers are the architects of careers. And whether, you know, I work specifically on the lit side and Katrina's media rights, but I think across the board, you know, with all of our clients, we always ask the question, what do you want? You know, where do you want your career to be? What do you want from your career? You know, short term, long term. And, you know, you want to build a business out of it, like a company, or do you just want to do your own thing? 
And then we design the blueprint to get them there. And ultimately, it's about getting them to a point of freedom where they can do whatever they want, whether it's, you know, if they want to write a movie about toilet paper, they can do that because they have the cachet. And we, you know, we have built their career to that point. Or, you know, if they want financial freedom, that's a consideration. If they want to, you know, build a Ryan Murphy-like empire, you know, we put together the blueprint for that. And then we're their business partner along the way. You know, we help them manage relationships. We help them form relationships, develop material, choose the right material, which a lot of times is, you know, even more important. You know, it's not always about working. Sometimes it's about knowing when to say no and focusing on one thing. And it's about connecting dots and ultimately being proactive and entrepreneurial as far as their careers go. And then we liaise with their agents, their publicists, their lawyers, and really organize and manage the teams around them as well and make sure everybody's doing their jobs and paddling in the same direction. And I think what's unique about Sugar is that they're trying to, or, you know, we're trying to do what I think no other management company is doing in terms of A, the structure of the company. You know, we have, in addition to our production side, that has an overall deal at Netflix and TV and a first look for features. We also have a book publishing imprint. We have about seven or eight books coming out through that. We have a podcast studio. We have a whole tech side of the company that's building, you know, I guess, internet-facing platforms and various businesses and technologies. We have a futurist that we brought on board to consult at the company. We're trying to reinvent the ad and the brand business in a really fun and unique way. And it's ultimately about making sure that we're leaving nothing on the table for our clients because it's always client-focused and client-first. And all of these resources, while they operate independently and are their own self-sustaining businesses, they're a lever for the clients and not the other way around. So we'll never you know, put our production side on a client's material just because we treat them like any other producers. And if they're the right fit for the client and the individual project, then great. If they're not, we can still utilize their expertise and their relationships. And it's, you know, Michael calls it an ecosystem. And it was born out of a frustration where at a lot of companies, you just saw, you know, so much being left on the table for these clients. And we wanted to make sure that we could service any whim and ambition that they had, and that we had to reach the relationship to really build each other up in the sense that the tide raises all boats, but with a very clear brand at its core and a very clear focus on quality. And I think there's a understanding across the company that, you know, good art is good commerce and quality comes first. And that ultimately helps everybody, including the clients. I think David put that very, very well in terms of what I do. Media rights is a little unique because a lot of writers that are writing for features or trying to get staffed on TV shows, they do need a dynamic team where they have kind of an agent and a manager and a business kind of attorney or someone like that. In what I do, a media rights manager and a media rights agent are pretty similar. Like our jobs are very unique that even though we're not producing, we do have to think like producers. Like when I get a book, the hardest part of my job is I have to distinguish reading from pleasure for reading for what I do as a job. So I read a book and I'll immediately in my mind, I kind of think, who could star? Who could produce this? Who's the right writer? Who's the director? And you kind of build a list of how you would put this movie together. And that's who we send it to. And as a 
media rights manager, I kind of joke with my clients a lot of the times for some of them that do have agents is the big difference is the manager is almost your therapist. You know, we are there for the day to day. We have the time to read various drafts of material. We can be a support system for the client in pitch meetings when they feel like they need that kind of extra set of hands during a meeting. You're a lot more involved in their day-to-day business. And that's what I enjoy and I love actually. I love being able to devote more time to my client rather than being in 20, 30 staff meetings a week. And I think it's a very unique relationship you have with your client and being able to be honest and gut checking them, as David mentioned. And I think what makes Sugar 23 so unique is our management business just started in January. So first of all, all of us have never been in the same room together, which I think is so crazy and just a highlight of the times we're in. But as David said, what Michael's created here in the management team is a unique opportunity to not have limits with what you do with your clients. And exactly as David said, when we start working with someone, we say, what's your five-year goal? Or what's your 10-year goal? And what's your 15-year goal? Because this isn't just a project-to-project thing. It's like, what is your dream and how can we help you achieve that? And I think Michael's done a very good job of letting people pursue what they're passionate about, not putting limits on what you want to accomplish and having all the tools to help us get creative. And that's what's been really fun. And having colleagues too that have had different experiences that can weigh in on certain aspects of business. And it's just been a great experience. And I think Sugar 23 kind of is always trying to be ahead of the curve. And I know that a lot of people know that about Michael, that he's always ahead of it and anticipating what we need. And I think that's what's so great about us is we're trying to be proactive rather than reactive with our clients. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. Based on both of your answers, I would love to get a bit more granular. Obviously, you have clients. I would love to know, how do you find your clients? And what would you suggest that those listening do to best position themselves so that either they contact you or that you find them? 
Obviously, there are ways for them to query, but more importantly, they should be working on their own projects, creating their own IP. What are your thoughts on what writers can do to become either one of your clients or for another managing company? You know, there's not one way to do it. I think that you can see that even by Katrina and my story of how we broke into the industry and our path to where we are today, which is one of the beautiful things as well, because there's a lot of freedom in figuring out your way. I would say that the most important thing to do, period, at any stage in your career is just to keep creating. You know, if you're obviously it's a different answer for actors and whatnot, but if you're a writer or director, you're a creator and you can create a job, you can create a movie, a TV show, or whatever that is. And if it's good enough, the cream does rise to the top eventually. And, you know, you have this amazing thing in your pocket, most likely an iPhone or, you know, whatever brand you subscribe to that has an amazing camera in it. And you can go and shoot a very high quality movie or scene or web series for pretty much nothing nowadays and just put it online and people will gravitate to good material and will find it. I think you can always enter the contests like the Nichols and you know the Austin Festival TV contest and all the various competitions out there. And we do look at those. I think the value of an MFA is not so much what you learn at the MFA, but the network that you build. Because in theory, your colleagues or your classmates are going you know, to work at the various agencies or work for different writers or become writers and directors themselves. And so that's a really great way to just expand that network and to just get out there and meet people and have your stuff read. And don't be too precious with it because I've seen a lot of young writers, especially, they write one script and they think it's their ticket and it's the best thing that they've ever written. And then they don't write something else for the next three, four years just waiting to be discovered off of that one script. But I think writing and directing is one of those things that you get better at with age and experience. So you should continue just developing and creating more material. You know, you can also get a job as a writer's assistant or set PA or agent assistant or whatever that might be. Once again, to expand your network and meet the right people and be in the business and learn how it works, which is also really valuable when you're eventually creating your own things. Yeah. And for my business, finding clients is a little bit more unique because we are dealing with novels most of the time or memoirs. On that end, how I find clients is very specific. As I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of different publishing agencies in New York. And what publishing agents do is they actually help writers get a book deal. And so publishing agents... There have been a lot of stories over the past couple of years of amazing writers that are found through slush piles and queries. It does work, but they are kind of exhausted in terms of how many submissions they get there. But what happens with how I find clients is a publishing agent will call me and say, Hey, I'm working with this author. We just closed this book deal. I read and I think there's film TV potential. Can you give it a read and see what you think? And in terms of novels, that's pretty straightforward. Back in the day before this pandemic, I was going to New York four to five times a year to sit with publishing agents and hear about new voices they're working with and meet with them that way. But because of COVID, it's been a little bit more difficult. But I do think one way for writers, I know there's a lot of frustrations with the publishing industry in terms of lack of diversity and how inclusive it is. And I think they are trying to get better in terms of finding new writers that don't have the privilege of 
getting an MFA or making those connections and opening it up. So we do find more voices. So I've been pleased to see some of the changes being made there. In terms of some of my other clients, as I mentioned, I work with a lot of nonfiction. Some of that is literally a life right story. So it's, you know, when you see these crazy stories on the news that you're like, that's a movie. Like sometimes I have to slip into people's DMs and be like, hey, do you have someone looking over your life rights? Like, I would love to talk to you about how we could turn your story into a movie. Also, just with how content is changing now, there are TikToks being optioned, which is crazy. I don't know if everyone saw that viral story of a young woman who moved into an old folks home thinking it was an apartment and ended up building this amazing community that's in development and was a massive bidding war. So I think now, because there are so many options of how to get your story heard, I rely a lot on my colleagues and the assistants at Sugar23. And we always ask them, like, tell us what you're watching. Tell us what you see. Because there could be a story on Reddit. There could be kind of a TikTok that I'm not aware of. There's only so many hours in the day that I can actually look for more material because of how much reading I have. But I always love to find new clients in creative ways. And to David's point is like, the only way you get noticed is if you keep creating material. Like if you're writing short stories on Medium, like maybe the first one won't take off, but the sixth one would. And that one's going to get a lot of viral views and shares and that could land you an agent. I think if you feel passionate about something and passionate about your writing, don't stop. And eventually it is going to stick in some way or the other. But I think the luxury we all have now is there's so many ways to get noticed. So just take advantage of that. Once you sign someone, bring them on as a client. I know you mentioned working with them to identify what their goals are. But once you get a bit more granular and start working on scripts or the book they're working on, how do you work directly with the client? I imagine there's a lot of phone calls, and emails, feedback, and notes. But can you walk us through from your perspective what that looks like? Yeah, I think it really depends on what stage of their career the individual client is at and what's going on in their life. I think it's a very different experience for a young, you know, emerging writer that hasn't, you know, been paid professionally before, as opposed to an established showrunner that's been in the business for 20 years and has a very established network and and awareness around town. You know, if you were to synthesize it into, you know, one thing, it usually involves a getting familiar with all of their work that we weren't familiar with before. So if they have scripts that I haven't read or movies I haven't seen, I want to know everything that we have in our arsenal to use. And then we usually talk about what to write or, you know, what they want to direct next. And then we form a specific plan of, okay, if you want to write this kind of thing, great, this is what you need to do. Let's start talking ideas. Let's start, you know, create 20 log lines and let's narrow it down to five or whatever that might be. And with directing, it's let's find the producers that do the material you want to do, or let's go and try and find, you know, a piece of IP. And a lot of times I will be talking to somebody like Katrina or, you know, somebody in our book scouting department and just giving the clients an opportunity to actually express you know, like we said earlier, where they want to be, and whether it's in five years, in one year, in 10 years, and really creating that plan of action, and then going to execute on it. But usually, it's a variety of things. You want to have multiple irons in the fire. You know, If you've completed a script and it's actionable, I'm going to go and do everything I can to get that sold or made. But it would be great then if the client is also then working on their next thing. There's nothing better than 
rather than just an open-ended general to put a client in a room with a piece of material somebody just loved and is available or a piece of material that the client is pitching as something they want to do because then it gives everybody an action plan. And a lot of times that ends up being more effective and produces a more immediate result than an open-ended general. But there's also, you know, a lot of use for the water bottle tour, as we call it, because that's how you expand your network. And, you know, who knows? You talk to an exec and you say, I'm really passionate about, you know, buskering. And the exec says, oh, I used to be a professional busker. Let's develop that. And, you know, magic can happen that way, too. So it's just about, you know, just being proactive and actually doing something towards whatever plan we created. And I think working with authors, it's a little specific and different because obviously writing a novel is truly, truly a craft I respect so much because it's one thing to judge someone's work, but to be able to sit down and eloquently put together a story in 300 pages is really just, first of all, an accomplishment in itself. So how I usually work with writers is once we get to that process, that publishing agents give me their novel and I read the book. I'm very lucky that I get to read books about a year, a year and a half before they publish, sometimes even two years. Like I'll never forget, I was able to read The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt a full year before it published. And I just, I had a delayed flight to SFO and I was sitting on the ground just reading nonstop, not even caring and thinking like, wow, how lucky am I to have a job that I get to read this beautiful piece of literature before most of the people in the world. So that part is important because based on the publishing date is how we base our plan of what we call going out with the novel. And going out with the novel is kind of that process I was describing earlier is when I'm reading, I start making a submission list in my head of who are the right producers for this? Who are the right writers? Who are the right directors? Who are the right actresses? And I like to go out to all those elements at once because how David was describing is like a producer could trigger something in a writer that they didn't realize before. Like maybe a producer loves a book and we submitted it to an actress and that actress has been dying to work with that producer. And it's like, wow, there's this beautiful kind of combination you can make. But I plan on to go out with the book. Ideally, you always want to do it before publication because the goal for an author at the end of the day is the core of their business is their writing. So you want to sell more books. What sells more books than being able to have a deadline of variety announcement saying this is being adapted by Issa Rae or some major fun voice that's going to generate a bigger audience. So our goal is always to get the author to sell as many books as possible. And so once I establish that plan and I have the submission list, I usually like to send a book to 10 to 12 people first and kind of get that round going. And let's just say that I go out with a book. It usually takes people two to three weeks to read, depending on how long the book is. That's again, a harder part in my process. The response time is a little longer than with the spec. And once producers or writers or whoever start raising their hand saying, I like this, this is my vision. The core of what we do, as David also mentioned before, is like Sugar 23 is all about artists first. So before we talk about money, I always have my client get on a creative call with whatever entity is interested in adapting their property. Because here's the thing, some of these authors have spent 10 years writing this book and someone could look great on paper 
And then you hear what they have to say about your work and it could be a total disaster. So I don't like to waste people's time and get an offer in unless the creative fit is there. So I help coordinate all those calls with clients. Now they're Zooms, which is kind of cool because a lot of my clients are all around the world and I normally don't have the luxury of seeing them face-to-face. So I've actually met more of my clients this past year than I ever have, which has been great. So I help set those meetings. After those meetings, we debrief and kind of talk about the pros and the cons of who to move forward with. And then from there, sometimes we move forward with one producer who takes it to multiple buyers, multiple producers who take different territories, and then it becomes a bidding war. And I kind of guide them through that whole process because a lot of the times what happens, and this happened to me this year, is a producer could make an offer that's not as great as someone else, but their creative vision is so inspiring that the author will choose to take sometimes a little bit less money. So I kind of guide them through that, talk to the benefits. And once that deal closes, a lot of the times authors want to be involved in the adaptations so of producers are great and keeping them posted, but some don't really want to be involved. So that's another way I help as well in their careers. I check in every now and then, see how the development's going. And then usually it's interesting for my business. It kind of works very cyclical because once that deal's closed, the author's off to write their new book. And Kind of, it could be a couple months till we talk. And then when they have the new book, we get right back into it. I just want to double click on something Katrina said, which I think is really important and worth highlighting, which is it's really about finding the right creative match for material. I think, especially on the younger writer side, a lot of people get hooked on the fact of, oh, this person likes my material and wants to do it. And they're a big producer, big name. But the process can then be really brutal if you're not seeing eye to eye with whomever that is. And so I think taking the meetings and really, you know, it's not a one-sided interview where the younger writers or directors are trying to prove themselves. It should really be a two-way street where the creatives are also, you know, meeting the producers and the executives and trying to figure out if they're the right people to really help bring their vision to life and to help guide their baby because it takes a long time, as Katrina mentioned to actually create this material. And it's really precious. So you know, I think that part of it is especially important. I love that. Before we go, I want to make sure we have time to ask a couple of bonus questions. The first one being, without your clients included, of course, if you could take any writer living or dead to any restaurant, could be a fast food restaurant, doesn't have to be, which writer would you choose, which restaurant, and why? Well, all my friends listening, if they are, would roll their eyes because i probably quote, Malcolm Gladwell more than anybody. I think how he thinks about everyday things and how he examines them and talks about them is really fascinating. I don't know if anybody's listening to his latest season of revisionist history, but he has a great three-parter on taking down The Little Mermaid and how we should fix it and how we should approach storytelling for children nowadays. And I think it's absolutely genius and worthwhile. So we'd love to share a meal with him and the best meal I've ever had in my life was at a little restaurant in the Basque region of Spain called Asadora Chevaria, which is, they cook everything on a grill, essentially, but it takes like three and a half hours to get through a 16-course meal, and it's heaven on earth if there ever was such a thing. So, you know, would love to do that. Yeah, and for me, I think I would love to share a meal with Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I think it's very hard for me to pick my favorite novel, but A Hundred Years of Solitude has had a massive impact on my life and my literary taste. As I mentioned, 
I grew up in South America. So magical realism just kind of takes me home. I've been privileged enough to work with authors like Isabel Allende. And Gabriel for me is the first piece of literature I remember in like my seventh grade English class. We read one chapter from 100 Years of Solitude. And I have never highlighted and underlined a passage more in my life in that chapter. And I just remember thinking like, wow, this is what it means to be a writer and create a world and kind of just communicate so many feelings through the written world. And I would love to have dinner with him. There is a restaurant called La Mar and there's locations in San Francisco and in Chile and in Bogota. But I specifically would take Gabriel to the location in Lima. The restaurant has amazing ceviche, the best pisco sours. And the location in Lima is outside in a garden and you can hear music and there's like kind of vines hanging from the rooftop. And I just would ask him so many things and have a great meal. And I think particularly what I would want to ask him now is there's this infamous interview with his literary agent that she did. Carmen Balsal has passed away. But she mentioned she would never sell the rights to 100 Years of Solitude. And Gabriel had this master plan with a producer back in the day that he wanted to produce 100 hours of content. And he was calling it like one mini movie a week, which now translates to a limited series. So it could be a 10 season limited series. And I know there's a development in the process now to adapt the work, but I would love to hear like what he was originally envisioning because everyone was claiming at the time it was impossible. But now kind of just the whole process has changed so much that I think his vision would be possible. And I would just love to hear how he wanted it on the screen, how he would be able to capture all that magic. And, you know, it would be amazing if it were ever true that I could meet him. The very last question is... If you could choose one piece of advice or learning from your entire career that you'd want to pass along to the writers who are listening right now, what's the one thing that you would say? I wish somebody gave me this advice early on, and I can never repeat it enough, but really go live your life and go experience it. I'm overly ambitious, and I know people that share the same trait are more than willing to sacrifice certain things for the sake of work, especially early on when they're trying to make it and really you know, achieve whatever success they're after. But I think taking the time to find that work-life balance and nurture your friendships and your close relationships and you know, travel if you can or read about traveling and just enriching yourself outside of what you do, I think is extremely important, you know, not only from a mental health standpoint, but also just it will make you a better artist and a more interesting person, which ultimately is what writing and creating is about. So I think that can't be stressed enough. And you know, if you think you have a balance, just be mindful and think about it even more. And you know, when you think work gets in the way of you know, a wedding or something like that, trust me, it's never important enough. You should go to the wedding or you, know, you should go to a birthday or whatever that might be. Yeah. And I love that, David. And I would say what my advice would be, and it's always hard, and I get that this is hard, but don't let the first wave of passes get to you because everyone gets passed on. And the thing is, is that it takes one person to get your vision, to get your movie made, to get that adaptation you want, to get that connection. And I think that a lot of people take it really personally when 
producers pass, but you have to think about it is everyone's creating their own brand, their own vision. They have to stay unique to their kind of career goals. And if everyone took on everything, it would just not make sense. People wouldn't be identified through what they're passionate about. So I know it's really difficult and it's really hard, but you have to have a thick skin and just power through and keep writing and not let those passes affect you. Because if you do, it's just going to discourage you. And you know, everyone goes through it. I think you could talk to every successful person out there and they have a story. So just don't, don't be discouraged when you're not finding the right fit because it is out there eventually. Love that. My very last question is, did you have fun today talking to us about your career? Just talking about Sugar 23. Yeah. I mean, fun. I think I'm very awkward talking about myself sometimes. I'm much better than <laughs> like my clients and much prefer it that way. But you know, I think what you're doing for all the writers out there and creatives and whomever might be listening is really great and a really amazing tool. And I hope you keep doing it for a long time and that they find value in it. So thank you for having us. I'll echo David and say thank you for having us because I know sometimes it's really hard to be able to talk to a manager and get that opportunity. So I'm glad you're creating that venue for people. And you know, as fun as a Zoom could be, it'd be great. But next time, now that David and I both talked about those restaurants, I'm hungry and wish we could do it over a meal next time. <laughs> Absolutely. We're obviously based in New York. But when we come to LA, we could do a real IRL podcast. So thank you again so much. I know we barely scratched the tip of the iceberg. We'd love to have you back on some time to get even more granular. I really appreciate you getting into what you do. Is there anything before you go you want to shout out or plug or projects or not at all? Up to you. Nothing on my end, but absolutely in any time. And thank you and reach out whenever you need anything. Yeah, thanks, Court. I would just quick plug if you're an author and love books, love hearing conversation, I would say I can't recommend Angela Ledgerwood's Lit Up podcast more. She does an amazing, amazing job of kind of highlighting important voices in the literary world, having conversations about their careers and process. So it's a very easy way and fun way to learn more about it if you're in the process of writing a novel. Love that. Well, thank you again so much, David and Katrina. It was an honor and a pleasure and we wish you the best. Good luck with everything you're working on. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at WriterExp. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.